This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. And to be honest, I'm not totally sure why I chose this book. I felt prompted by God. And already as we're going through it, I'm starting to sense some of the reasons that the Holy Spirit wants to teach us from this much-neglected Old Testament book. You know, if we look out on the Church of God throughout the world, in your own country, in your own communion, we know there is great need for revival. Because where the people of God are not actually dead, they are very sleepy, including ourselves. Very slow to seek God. We have small thoughts of God. Our lives are so little consecrated to him. And then we look at the leaders of the church of God throughout the world, and our hearts grieve. And there are faithful men and faithful women, but oh, so few. So many who teach error, who are not submitted to God or his word, who are not sensitive to his Holy Spirit. And there are those who are corrupt and who are evil. And here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 2, turning to a dark and evil time among the people of God. You know, in chapter 1, we heard this marvelous story about Hannah, this barren woman who was crying out to God, God, hear me, I am a desperate, forgotten woman. Give me a son. And if you give me this son, I will offer him back to you in lifetime service. And God visits Hannah, he remembers her, he gives her a son. She sends little Samuel to the temple. And then out of her heart, in the beginning of chapter 2, bursts this marvelous song of praise. And if you listen to a symphony or an opera, there's this opening overture, the initial theme, which you hear again and again in different ways throughout the piece until it all comes to a resolution. And Hannah's song is that overture. She praises a God whose eyes are always on his people, a God who has established the earth and who is going to bring justice. He is going to take the proud and the powerful and bring them low, and he's going to take the needy on the ash heap and seat them with princes. This is a grim and severe chapter we have before us. It's not a chapter you would automatically turn to for some sweet encouragement in your morning devotionals, but sometimes we skip those chapters to our loss. So we're going to start working through this chapter Uh, We're not going to read it all in one go. We'll go paragraph by paragraph and explain. And then we'll ask ourselves, what is the Holy Spirit saying to us across 3,000 years? So with this book, we no longer have the text conveniently on the projector behind us. So I strongly suggest you bring a Bible or at least put one on your phone so that you can follow along because you'll be much the richer for it. So here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and let's start at verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. 
man, what an introduction to a biography. The very first description of these men, Hophni and Phineas, worthless men. And usually the narrator of 1 Samuel is quite restrained and he prefers to show rather than tell. But in this passage, you can feel his burning anger as he steps away from being the dispassionate, unbiased narrator and passes judgment on these worthless men. There's no king in Israel. There's no judge at this time. The high priest and his family are the most important people in the nation of Israel. They are at the very top of the totem pole. But however important they are politically and however important they are religiously, the judgment of history and the judgment of God is that these men are worthless. They have no value before God. And the shameful thing is these priests do not know the Lord. Now they had their Torah. They'd been instructed. They're dealing with holy things all the time. But yet, the very people who are at the center, who are there to represent the people to God and God to the people, do not know the Lord. It's a dark thing for the people of God when her leaders do not know the Lord. And it seems this description is referring to the fact that they had no regard for God. And that will become painfully evident in this chapter. Now, before we get into all these sacrificial details, let me give you a little background on how things were supposed to work. In case you're a little shaky on your Leviticus and Numbers and Exodus, let me just remind you. The people of Israel would regularly bring a sacrifice to God. And the point of the sacrifice was to atone for their sins. The animal would die instead of me so that I can have fellowship and friendship with God and come before him without shame or without guilt. You would come to the temple or the tabernacle. You would slaughter the animal and the priest would take the blood of that sacrifice and splash it on the altar. And then he would sprinkle you, the worshiper. You were covered with the blood. The fat of the animal, in other words, the very best and tastiest portion, was reserved for God. And that was burned on the altar, and the smoke and the aroma ascended to God as a pleasing scent. The priests were given, according to the law of Moses the breast of the animal, and the right leg. They would wave those before the Lord, and that was to feed the priests. God made sure that those who served him were fed and taken care of. The rest of the animal, the majority of the animal, was returned to the worshipers for them to feast before God. See, when God calls us to come before him and bring sacrifice, he wants it to be done with joy and celebration shouldn't be with grimness and a frown and a sense that we're losing by this whole exchange. This sacrifice was meant to be a feast. And people would spread the meat on the table before God and rejoice and eat and celebrate before him. That's how it was supposed to work. That was the law. But now we find that a human custom has changed things. Verse 13. The custom of the priests with the people was, th was that when any man offered sacrifice, 
the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came to them. So this is the meat that's boiling for the worshipers to enjoy after the sacrifice is done. And not content with the breast and the right leg, these priests are sending their servant over to the worshipers with a giant barbecue fork in their hands. Back away from the pot or cauldron or kettle, all these different instruments, it's like a frenzy of gluttony. And the servant would stab his fork into the pot and root around until that fork was covered with the best cuts of meat from the pot. So they not only were the priests satisfied, they are engorging themselves with meat from the worshipers. They are sinning against the people of God. They are robbing God's people and thinking of these worshipers merely as a means to indulge their own carnal flesh. This is already bad. It's very bad, but it's about to get even worse. Verse 15. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Leviticus 3.16 says, The fat belongs to the Lord. And if any man, a priest or a layperson, takes that fat and eat it, he will be cut off from the people of God. Cut off from God's presence, God's power, and his promises permanently. This is a massive sin. Here are these two men, Hophni and Phinehas, already well-fed on their own portion. They've already engorged themselves on the boiled meat stolen from the worshipers, and they're still not satisfied. In fact, they're getting a little tired of boiled meat and some nice roasted meat sizzling with fat sounds really good to them. And they decide they are going to take the offering that belongs to God. In this culture, the best cut of meat always went to the most honored guest, the person at the table who was highest in status. And so by taking the best cut of meat for themselves, taking the fat for themselves, these two priests are saying, our status is higher than Yahweh's. We deserve the very best, the thing that's reserved for God. We have no shame in seizing out our fat, dimpled hands and grabbing for ourselves. And therefore, the narrator tells us, the sin of these young men was very great because they treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. They had contempt for the offering of God. It's not always true that handling holy things makes us holy. For some people 
who have right and true hearts, it does. And being in ministry and being in leadership and having the opportunity to soak in the word and to teach others and pray and minister to others draws their hearts closer to God. But for many people, being in leadership and being in ministry gives them a professional familiarity with the things of God. And at first, they were filled with awe and reverence, and they trembled before God the first time they entered into the sanctuary. But they've done it so often now. The words that were filled with meaning are mere sounds. The ceremonial actions are nothing more than a rigmarole that they perform, that their hearts have become cold and cynical. They no longer sense the presence of God. They do not know the Lord now if they ever knew him, and their hearts are filled with contempt. And it's a word of rebuke, a word of warning to all of us who are in ministry in any way among the people of God. Have our own hearts become cold and cynical? Are we mere professionals who bounce onto the stage, sliding easily through the service, through ministry, but really our hearts are filled with contempt for God and for his offering. God treats the offering, the sacrifice, with utmost seriousness. And as we'll discover, to despise the offering of God, to treat the sacrifice with contempt is a fatal sin, a sin from which there is no, for, uh, no recovery, no forgiveness, because that sacrifice is the one thing that opens up the way to God. And then the scene changes. And you'll discover in this chapter that the narrator, like a filmmaker, is cutting back and forth between these evil priests and this young boy, Samuel. Verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So here we are at Shiloh, and the place, it turns out, is rotten to the core. There's just a stink of spiritual death and decay hanging over the place. But there is this one bright spot, this little boy who's arrived as a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a five-year-old perhaps, this little boy underfoot that is barely recognized by anyone, and yet... God is at work doing something with him. He's clothed with a linen ephod. That was the sacred apron of the priests. This little boy is being trained as an apprentice priest. 
And you would, if you were choosing a Bible college or a seminary, and you went on a tour of, a, of the campus, this would be the worst place you could think you would choose. This is the environment this little boy is growing up under. Contempt for the Lord, moral decay, sin, priests who do not know the Lord. And yet God has his hand on Samuel, and he's growing in the presence of the Lord. And here's Hannah who has only had a few years with this boy. As soon as he's weaned, as soon as he's off the breast, he's sent away from her. She rips him from her arms and leaves him at the sanctuary. But she's not forgotten her son. And every year she's at work knitting or weaving this little robe for him. Every year it goes up a few sizes as Samuel grows. And on their annual visit to the holy place, Hannah brings her son her robe, his robe. Now, as we go through Samuel's story, we'll discover this robe is very significant. And it's almost like its own character through the story. The robe is how Samuel is recognized in life. And as we'll discover when we encounter the witch of Endor, Samuel's robe is how he's recognized even in the afterlife. And here it makes its first appearance. Hannah has given up a great deal in giving her son to the Lord. She had made a vow if God, you give me this boy, I will give him back to you for his whole life. And without hesitation, without reservation, she sacrifices her son to God. It's hard to imagine what that would have cost that woman to give up the one thing she'd been longing for and crying out for for years. But God is very determined that he will be in the debt of no man and no woman. And Hannah's repaid, not once over, not twice over, but fivefold, as God visits her and gives her three sons and two daughters. And meanwhile, Samuel, her pride and joy, is growing up in the presence of the Lord. And now the camera moves back to Eli's family. Verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the woman who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil doings, dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear the people of God spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not Listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Well, the story gets even worse. Because evil, worthless men like Hophni and Phinehas are not going to stop with the meat at the altar. They have an appetite for a different kind of flesh that they want to consume. And it's for the women who are serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. These women who have devoted themselves to the worship of God discover to their horror that there are these two priests with their greasy fingers who want to force themselves on these women and take advantage of them. And these men treat the woman just like they've treated the meat, just an object for the satisfaction of their carnal urges, nothing more. And this is not a gentlemanly seduction, obviously, these men who have not hesitated to rip meat from the hands of worshipers by force, 
you can imagine, would have no hesitation in using force on these women to have their way with them. This is the kind of horrible sexual abuse that's happening among the people of God. It seems like Eli is not such a great father. It's a remarkable contrast to Hannah, actually, who only had a few years with her son. She gets to see this boy once a year, and yet somehow her mothering, with the very little time she has, is far more effective than old, old Eli's has ever been. Eli is an old man. The window of opportunity in parenting his sons is long past, and he's beginning to bear the fruit of his neglect. There is Eli sitting at the chair to the house of meeting. And he's obviously not a very effective supervisor because he has no idea what's actual, what horrors are actually going on in the sanctuary. But word starts getting back to him. And outraged worshipers who've been molested in different ways come with their outraged complaints to the high priest. So many, in fact, that there's no doubt in his mind about what his sons are doing. This is not merely some whispered gossip he's overheard. There are detailed, horrible complaints that are coming to him. And so he summons his sons to give them a rebuke. The rebuke, it turns out, is surprisingly feeble. Why, why do you do such things, he asks them. I'm hearing some bad reports. This is, this, is, this, is not, this is not good, boys. All this stealing and raping is just, it's just a little too much. You notice this rebuke is only a verbal rebuke. He sits down with them across the table. He points out their failings and their sins, but it's nothing more than a report in their HR file. The people of Israel are powerless against these two young men. There is one person in the entire nation who has the power and authority to do something about it, and that's Eli. And he fails. He does nothing. It's mere words, a mere complaint. Leaders are called to lead. And leaders are called to have hard conversations and to make painful choices to protect the people of God. But Eli seems a bit afraid of his sons, not the first father to be afraid of his own sons. And he deals actually quite gently with him. But there are times when gentleness is a sin. And niceness and delicacy are sins when the people of God are not being protected. And Eli's gentleness is only indulging himself and his own weakness, and it's going to bring disaster upon him and upon his whole family. But then he says something prophetic in verse 25. If someone sins against a man, look, you can at least appeal to God to intercede between the two parties and make things right. But boys... If you sin against God, if you stab your finger right into his eye, who is going to intercede for you before the Lord? There is no one 
strong enough to defend you against the wrath of God. And you are opening yourselves up to the most horrible and devastating judgment. But they would not listen to the voice of their father. You notice they say nothing in response and they do nothing in response. And clearly Hophni and Phinehas have lost respect for the old man many years ago. But the narrator makes something else clear. The reason they did not listen to the voice of their father was that it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. God is determined that these foul and degraded priests will not escape their punishment. And just like God hardened Pharaoh's heart, the Pharaoh who boasted, I do not know the Lord. So God determines to harden the hearts of these men. You know, in the Exodus story, we read about God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardening his own heart. There's this interplay of the sovereignty of God and human freedom. And there may come a point when people have gone so far in sin, when they rebelled against God with such a high hand over and over again, where their consciences have become so seared, the nerve endings of sensitivity to the spirit have been burnt off completely that God just locks them in to a path of disobedience. It's true that God promises that if we repent, he will forgive us. But he does not promise that we will always be capable of repentance. Hebrews tells us about Esau, who wept when he realized he'd lost the birthright and the blessing, but he could not repent though he sought it with tears. That is a strong warning to all of us who are indulging in repeated severe sins and telling ourselves, I can stop anytime I want. I can ask God to forgive me anytime I choose and he'll wipe the slate clean and it will be like it never happened. And the spirit warns us, beware of taking advantage of my grace in this way. For you too may find yourself locked into a course of destruction. It was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And then in contrast, verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. As this young lad is growing up physically and becoming taller and taller, along with his physical growth, there is a spiritual growth. And he's growing in favor, in grace with God. And God looks upon that whole temple campus and sees nothing but degradation and foulness and evil. But yet there's one thing at the holy place that God sees, and he sees with favor and pleasure. And it's this young boy. And as he grows in favor with God, Samuel is also growing in favor with people. The faithful remnant of God's people who truly love God and seek him and are appalled at the disaster that is taking place 
in the, in the tabernacle complex. And they start being, becoming aware that there is one person here who is a true priest before God, who treats people with decency and kindness and respect, who bears them on his heart, who has an awe and a reverence and a love for God. Maybe things are not com- as completely disastrous as they could be. And then comes something you imagine Eli has been half expecting and half dreading for many years. Verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli. Here's a prophet that appears. And isn't it odd that God refuses to speak directly to Eli? In chapter 3, we'll see that God speaks directly to this boy but God refuses to speak directly to the high priest. That's the contempt that God has for Eli. I don't even want to talk to him directly. I'm going to send a prophet instead. And this man of God, this anonymous person, one day appears at the temple, at the the tabernacle, seemingly out of nowhere, and has this announcement for Eli. Thus says the Lord. Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. It's a series of rhetorical questions going back 500 years to Moses' brother Aaron in Egypt, when God appointed Aaron and his house to be priests forever over the people of God. And they had this immense privilege that no other Israelite had of coming before God, entering into the holy of holies before the ark of God itself in this smoke-filled, glory-saturated room to behold the presence of God, to represent the people, to lay their prayers before him, and to receive God's blessing. No one among the 12 tribes was as favored, was given as much grace as this house was. And where God gives grace, he expects holiness. Where God gives grace, he expects holiness. He expects lives lived worthily, of who God is and all that he has done for us. And here God has graced this family incredibly. And by the way, even provided for them food from the offerings. They have no cause whatsoever to complain before God. And then this man of God goes on speaking God's word in verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. God is angry that his sacrifices are being scorned and his offerings are being treated with contempt. And that word scorn literally means to kick, to trample underfoot, to treat something with the utmost contempt and degradation. And notice the condemnation is not first of all, upon Hophni and Phinehas, but upon their father Eli, the high priest. The responsibility ultimately is him. And he is condemned for honoring his sons above the Lord. 
Eli had some regard for God, obviously. He felt the danger of his son's blasphemy, even if they didn't. But he honored his sons more. And he was more concerned about preserving his son's position and protecting the family's reputation and keeping the institution going than he was about honoring God or protecting God's people. He was a nice man. He was a gentle man. But he is condemned for not honoring the Lord. And not only that, you notice that Eli himself is included in the son's sin of fattening themselves on the choicest part of the offering. Turns out Eli himself was complicit and he found it hard to resist the platters of barbecued meat that his sons would bring him. Chapter four tells us incidentally that Eli was a heavy man and he himself had grown fat and bulky, participating in the sins of his sons. Not a sin that he initiated, but one he could not resist the temptation to participate in himself. And it must have been difficult to rebuke his sons with severity when there was gravy all over his own face. He was involved himself as much as he blamed his sons. And now... Here is God's judgment in verse 30. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. God had given a magnificent legacy to the house of Aaron. But that legacy, that grace is contingent on them following God in truth and faithfulness. And now because of their sin and their greed, the promise has been forfeited. And God utters this word that deserves to be emblazoned on our own minds. Those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. The word for honor or glorify in the Old Testament is kebed. And the root of that word is weight. Glory is about weight. And if you've ever had an encounter with the glory of God, you may well have felt the sense of over overwhelming weight in the room, this, this overwhelming, almost crushing sense of the presence of God. In the scales of reality, God is by far the heaviest. And to honor or glorify God means treating him in our own actions and hearts the way he actually is in reality. Those who honor me I will honor. But those who treat me with contempt, those who despise me, will be lightly esteemed. There is this fittingness to the judgment. How we treat God is how we will be treated ourselves. And if we treat God lightly, 
as though he is of very little account, as though he weighs very lightly on our consciences or our convictions. The just punishment for that is that God will treat us lightly ourselves. Like the chaff, the dust that the wind blows away, Psalm 1. We will be weighed in the balances and found wanting. You know, we all want to matter, don't we? We all want our life, our identity to have some weight. And we have this urge in our lives to prove our worth to other people, our fathers and mothers, a boyfriend or girlfriend, a husband or wife, our children, employers. Somehow we're all seeking someone to validate the fact that you are worth something. You have some weight in this world. But in the end, it's God who assigns our weight. And those who in the end will have weight and honor before God are not those who seek the praise of man, those who boast and scrabble and climb for position themselves, but those who honor God will themselves be honored for God will be in the debt of no man. But here we have worthless men, men with no worth and no weight, and God is about to blow them away. Verse 31, behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye and all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. God is going to do great things for Israel. This is the word of judgment on Eli, but there are good things happening for the people of God. There is a golden age that's about to emerge prosperity, success, safety, thriving. But the house of Eli will be on the outside looking in. There is revival coming. God is about to do amazing things. And when that time comes, there will be no greater grief than to be on the outside looking in. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your, this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And what God says, these are not empty words like Eli's words. What God says will come to pass in chapters three and chapter four. We'll see how God in history rolls out his judgment upon this condemned family. And then a promise for God's people. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Hannah's prophetic song is coming true. Here is this family at the very center and the very top. And they're going to be brought to the very bottom and pushed to the outside, begging these fat, 
men begging for a piece of bread. But God has not abandoned or forgotten his people, and he promises there will be a priest. There will be someone I am going to raise up to ensure access and favor and fellowship with God. As we read through the story, many chapters through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, becomes clear that this priest is Zadok and his house, another descendant of Aaron, a faithful and true priest who is going to serve under David in the temple of God, a priesthood at last that will ensure that God's people are faithfully brought before him. But surely, Zadok is not the end of the story. Because I don't know about you, but... I don't get very pumped up hearing about Zadok and his household. That's all a bit remote for us today. Does this chapter have anything to say to the people of God today? Is the spirit perhaps speaking across 3,000 years to those of us in this room? Let me suggest a few things. This is a chapter of judgment. Judgment begins with the household of God. And God is as holy today as he was then. God is as jealous of his honor as he was then. And God is a God who will bring justice in this world as he did then. And we were all priests in the temple of God. And some of us have this special privilege of shepherding, of pastoring, of ministering to people. And we must have the judgment of God making us sober and serious as we serve God's people. God is not as concerned with our own personal ministry as we are. And we imagine ourselves to be indispensable. But there are graveyards filled with indispensable men and women. God does not need any of us for his purposes. And he does not need our institutions for his purposes. Michelle and I spent many years in a family of churches. And there were many good things about this network but it turned out there was a rottenness at the core. We idolized this network. Really, we did. And people who came into this group of churches would speak about encountering this group at almost the same level as speaking of their conversion story, which is a very dangerous sign. It turned out that there was some sexual abuse of children going on, not by leaders, but by members of different congregations. But these leaders hesitated in dealing with these issues. And they were more concerned about protecting the institution, the church, the ministry. They were worried about budget and attendance. And so they dealt with these things lightly. And these crimes were hidden, put under the carpet in the hopes that they would never be raised again, and that this ministry into which so much had been invested, so much sweat poured in, so many prayers, so much sacrifice, 
that the institution would survive. And of course, these evils would not stay safely under the carpet, and God brought them to light, and that whole ministry imploded. And if only those leaders, at the time these things were raised, had cared more about honoring God, and had cared more about protecting the people of God, God would have honored that. They wanted to protect themselves, and they wanted to keep the institution going, and thereby they destroyed the institution. God does not care about Bile ministries or whatever your ministry is if it is not serving his kingdom. We love institutions if they are devoted to God. And there are institutions represented here that have done tremendous work for the kingdom and long may it continue. But God can dispense with our ministries and dispense with our institutions as soon as we begin to think that they are indispensable. That's a hard word. There's good news in this chapter and that God is always quietly sustaining his people. And even as the camera is focusing on these great evils, it goes back to this little boy, Samuel, growing and growing and growing in stature and favor. And who knows, in the darkest times in the church of God, that there is not some child somewhere seeking God on whom the hand of God rests. You know, the work of God is never going to fall to the ground for the lack of a man or woman of God to carry it on. And if one person falls, if God cuts down one person, he raises up someone else to take it over. The people of God, the church of God, is safe in God's hands because ultimately he is the one who secures its future. You know, as an Israelite, it must have been devastating, a true Israelite, devastating to see these evils in the temple of God, the house of God. Because you would have wondered, how do I know going up to Shiloh whether or not my own sacrifice is acceptable to God when these are the guys offering it up? These are worthless men. And surely God has contempt for these people. But yet, I'm somehow supposed to trust these priests to bring me into the presence of God? That would have cast a great shadow of doubt on your own sense of freedom and access to God. God has ensured a faithful priest over his house forever. Not Zadok or any of his sons, but Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is the one who stands with the ephod, with those two onyx stones on which are engraved the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's Jesus himself, the one who does everything according to God's heart and will that ensures our complete, total, unfettered, joy-filled access to God, where we can feast before God as we are about to in a few moments, knowing that God is pleased with us and that there is someone at last, who is able to intercede for us with the God whom we have sinned against. Jesus ensures access and worship. 
you know, the great sin of Hophni and Phinehas was that they had contempt for the offering of the Lord. There's no more dangerous sin than despising the atoning sacrifice that God has provided. And that sacrifice is the cross of Jesus Christ. If we cut ourselves off from the blood of Christ, we've cut ourselves off from all hope of God's mercy. The book of Hebrews warns against those who trample the son of God underfoot and profane his blood. Those who go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth. And they will discover that our God is a consuming fire. The grace of God is a summons and an empowering to holiness. And if the cross of Christ has begun to mean little to us, if we're like, well, whatever, these are just words, I hear them again and again, they no longer have any resonance in my heart, we have begun to show contempt to the offering of God. Even worse, if we look at the cross of Jesus and think to ourselves, there's my get-out-of-jail-free card. I can go on sinning and sinning and sinning. I can always go back to the cross and trust that Jesus is going to take care of all my guilt. That is an evil heart that will be condemned, and we will discover to our horror one day that God has locked us in to a hardness of heart from which there is no recovery and no repentance. These are, these are heavy words, brothers and sisters. And I invite you to open up your own heart to the Holy Spirit and ask him, Lord, is there the beginning of this cynicism and coldness in my own heart towards what Jesus has done for me? And if there is, breathe life upon me so I may be a true worshiper before him. Let's pray and ask God for this grace. Ah, Father God, we begin by coming to you in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, our great and sinless high priest, who has made a once for all finished, completed, perfect sacrifice on the cross for our sins. We do not deserve this grace. We are not worthy of this grace but we ask that we may live lives that are worthy, that reflect how supremely you value your son and what he's done. Help us to honor you so we ourselves may be honored, O Lord. And may these words of judgment serve as a warning, a redemptive warning by your Holy Spirit. And may no one here be allowed to be confirmed in destructive sin and rebellion against you. But bring us into your house where we may feast forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.